Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Yeah, good morning. It's um, pretty good weather today in Melbourne. Um, Yeah, it's practically flooding. (laughs) Good morning, listeners, and welcome to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, Jacob and Lalita at the helm today. And uh, before we move any further, we are going to acknowledge the uh, land. Uh, We acknowledge the elders of the uh, Wurundjeri of the Kulin Nation. Uh, We pay our respects to the elders past and present. This land was stolen and never ceded. And always was, always will be um, Aboriginal land. (laughs) Okay. Um, We've got a couple of interviews today. um, And there's so many um, very uh, interesting... um, There's so many interesting things happening um, that um, we are um, overwhelmed, actually. There's uh, the Wednesday march that took place, and there has been elections in Malaysia, and there has been budget after budget. So let's start with... What would you like to start with, Jacob? Um, hopefully the, the first thing I think we should talk about is, um, you know, I'll give a bit of a report back on the rally that happened on Wednesday, because um, I was there. And it was um, definitely a, a very expiring kind of event. I mean... Inspiring. Yeah, it was probably the biggest um, rally I've actually been part of in terms of, or the biggest union mobilisation I've been a part of since in my history of being involved in the left. Uh which is, has been since 2013. So I wasn't around, well, I was probably very young back then when the big, massive work choices, anti-work choices rallies were happening, um, which I imagine, which I've heard were bigger or significantly uh, even more militant. Um, but, yeah, I think it was uh, a great demonstration triumph. You know, a lot of the unions uh, came out in full force, including the ETU, the RTBU. Um, <coughs> um, the AEU had a pretty big contingent, um, and, you know, of course, you had lots of um, different organisations, um, the FSU and, you know... The CFMU was there in strength. Yeah, the CFMU was there in strength. And I think it was also, you know, the rally actually could have been bigger because there was a number of other... There's a number of other unions, like oh, a probably... Of the well. Yeah, there was probably a lot of other unions that probably could have mobilised their members more, um, especially in the kind of government public sector. I mean, there was probably less of those workers out in full force compared to, say, the CFMU. Um, and I guess the, in terms of the politics of the rally, commenting on it a bit, it's um, it was quite clear, I mean, what was quite expiring is around some of the chants. I mean, there were clearly a hundred... The majority of those workers were, you know, chanting the de- and demanding um, the right to strike, um, which I think was good because I think that is one of probably more the most important integral kind of demands um, that the change the rules campaign should take up 
And, you know, there was a number of expiring speeches from some of the um, trade union leaders. I mean, probably the biggest scepticism I have, and there's a good article in The Age um, that, you know, argues the point that this should be go beyond simply another marginal seats campaign like this all this energy should be everybody's talking about that angle actually and yeah. for the age to say that it is amazing because they're <coughs> emphasizing the the ECTU from the left yes in, in the sense um, they're so used to the trade unions mobilizing on behalf of the ALP or on behalf of the election of a particular candidate mm. um, from the ALP um, it's just simply transparency emperor without clothes so if the ECTU has a lot to answer to because people are getting very cynical and if they don't jump on this enthusiasm and militancy that was displayed at this march on Wednesday um, they would lose the, the Dwindling uh, trade unions as they mm. are at the moment. Mm. So, well, because because we'll repeat the kind of history of what happened around work choices. Not stupid. They keep saying that, don't they? And um, it's it's a horrible situation to be for workers because then what? <coughs> Yeah, the trade unions don't support them, then they have to go out on their own. And community organisations can only support them to a certain extent. Um, so it makes it very difficult um, for workers. So the trade unions really have. Uh, a huge duty to the to the to the members, as well as the um, yeah the the conditions that um, are being imposed on them uh, beyond that as well. Um, whether it is unemployed workers or the the um, um, new start if you're counting in a minute. But okay, so before we go over to the budget. Oh yes, so the federal budget. Um, so there's an article written here in the latest Green Left Weekly, um, with, which gives a bit of a response to the federal budget, and you know, a bit of a summary is kind of of the budget is kind of expressed quite strongly in this opening line, and it, that is that you know the wealthy in corporations got a visit from Santa Claus, um, but the rest of us got scrooged again on budget night, and part of that comes. I mean, some of the significant things to note about the budget is some of the changes. Um, to income tax, and some of these changes would basically mean that you know a worker on the minimum wage earning forty one thousand would be on the same tax rate as a person with an income of two hundred thousand. Um, and of course, yeah, this is part of the kind of agenda of the government. You know, with with um, there's a, over eighty billion in corporate tax cuts, and the government also announced a seven-year overhaul of income tax that will result in tax revenues dropping by up to $140 billion and a serious undermining of our progressive taxation system. And, you know, you know there's a lot... And um, there's significant cuts to our public services, well, as in the ABC, National Archives, and the National Library, Library will have um, massive funding cuts. Uh, and, of course, there'll be... More, there's more than 2.2 billion cut from the university sector, and also there's, I think it's even worse on the welfare front. Um, front, um, with the government is also planning to extend the failed robo debt program to unfairly chase people for fake Centrelink debts, and this is what Scott Morrison kind of describes as clearing out the swamp. I mean, if you're if he was talking about clearing out the swamp, you'd think he's talking about. Um, the amount of corporations like Exxon Mobil who pay absolutely no tax, but no, what he actually means is people who have, you know, who are probably, uh, yeah, basically talking about people on, on welfare recipients and and stigmatisation there. And of course, there is no. Um, this is the fi- the f- um, I'm not sure if the, 
when was the last time New Start was increased? More than 10 years ago. More than 10 years ago. Oh, yeah, so the last time the base rate of New Start was raised was in 1994. So this is the next, another budget year where there's no proposed increase um, to New Start. And of course, you know, Morrison, Scott Morrison wears this as a badge of honour, the fact that his government has achieved the lowest level of welfare reliance in 25 years. But this um, simply means that more and more people are slipping through the safety net into abject poverty. It's a bit like the, the, is it the ostrich that puts his head <coughs> in the sand. He has the same attitude towards refugees as well. Uh, you know, he, he puts, he hides uh, uh, his head in the sand and, and pretend they're not there. That's, that's his way of uh, addressing difficult issues. But anyway. Richard Natali actually says that, um, you know, it's interesting, he summed it, up, summed it up really nicely. Yeah, sorry, that mic was off for a minute. Um, the, um, Richard Natali sums it up really nicely. He says, this is the budget that gives the middle finger to anybody that cares about a safe and stable climate in Australia. Um, and that applies for many of the sectors that, that Jacob has been um, going through there. But I thought I'd, I'd just read something quickly to, to listeners. Um, the amount of taxes paid by different people. Uh, no, not different people. The large corporations. Adani, with $724 million income, paid no tax. The Alkine Resources, $119 million income, paid no tax. Anglo-American, $3.6 million billion income, paid no tax. Aero Energy, 207 million, paid no tax. Banpool, Australia, 930 million, paid no tax. Chevron, 2.14 billion, paid no tax. Okay, that's the mic issue here. Yeah, all right. Um, Energy Australia, 7.76 billion, paid no tax. Um, Glencore, 18.35. Paid no tax. Um, Origin Energy Limited, 12.03 billion. Paid no tax. Uh, Q Coal, 328 million. Paid no tax. Shell, 4.24 billion. Paid no tax. Um, Whitehaven Coal, 1.58 billion. Paid no tax. Yan Coal, 1.46 billion. Paid no tax. Yulan Coal, 948 million paid no tax. And that's not the complete list either. So it's, um, it's a real problem because the, um, the, um, the fact that draining the swamp was mentioned before, it's um, a shame because um, the fact is, the richest people in, in the country are not paying any tax, and that's where the swamp is. Mm. And yet, um, the poorest people in Australia are paying way more, too much tax in, in, in <coughs> trying to support these rich, rich mm. people. It, it's, it's a transfer of wealth from the, the poor to the rich, and that's, I mean, we've been saying this for years, and it's, it's yeah. not new, new news to, um, uh, and, um, Listeners, so yeah, and I think, you know, what, what, um, the Labour opposition, the Greens should do is that they should block, um, this budget. Uh, you know, basically continues the pro business, um, pro, pro, um, 
pro-rich and anti-people agenda of the coalition government. And um, as um, Susan Price here writes in Green Left Weekly, um, to borrow the words of British Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn, it has unfairness at its very core, paid for the, by those who can least afford it. Yep, absolutely right. Um, so we then heard, um, what's his name, Bill Shorten, the, who, who gave a reply budget um, this morning, and there was um, a bit of discussion about what he planned. <coughs> which is to give 10 million people more than $900 tax relief over the year. I am assuming it's for the year. Um, he didn't specify that. And uh, it, it was like, you know, you, if, you, if you cut the budget, we can cut it even more. That was the tenure of the, of the debate between the two treasurers. Oh, I think, it, oh, the, no, I think the summary was... <coughs> What Bill Sean was sort of basically saying is that, oh yes, we'll give tax, we'll give more tax cuts to um, to to lower income earners. Yeah. Um, but the problem is, he's not really saying anything about challenging, you know, about challenging corporate power. Of or, course not. Uh, or, they give him money during elections. Or <laughs> or talking about, you know, this question of um, whether corporations should pay their fair share of taxes. Yeah. Um, especially to fund um, social services or completely ne- um, necessary social services. Okay, I'm going to play uh, a quick track so that we can get hold of the first interview. Um, let's go with... And welcome back to uh, Green Left Weekly listeners. We've got Ronnie Carini on the phone. And Ronnie is uh, speaking about West Papua and the latest developments there. The um, Ronnie is from um, uh, West Papua, and he has been a spokesperson for issues pertaining to this country for some time now. He used to work at 3CR. Welcome to Green Left Weekly Radio, uh, Ronnie. Good morning, Lalita. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Okay, thank you so much for um, being able to, to talk to us this morning. Um, so there's, there's a lot of things happening in West Papua uh, in relation to the Melanesian Spearhead Group and also in relation to Indonesia's extreme intervention and or, or, or recently there was a communication issues as well. Um, perhaps we can start with what's happening uh, via the Melanesian Spearhead Group. You want to you tell us what's happened, the latest stuff that's been happening? Yes, so in terms of um, the Melanesian Spearhead Group, it has been in the recent years um, that since the West Papuans have rallied, garnered some support around the Melanesian countries, which is comprised of Papua New Guinea, Fiji, Vanuatu, Solomon Island, and the yet-to-be-independent state, New Caledonia, uh, Indonesia realizes that um, it's something that is threatening their, their, their regional or their sovereignty. And therefore, they also, um, it was in 2014, 15, that they decided that really they have to use uh, the divide and conquer tactic by which they, they put a lot more aid, money for, for security, and police training with Fiji and Papua New Guinea. Mm. And so that in itself tried to divide the support within the MSG. And But it seems that they 
on one hand, they try to gain that support, which Fiji and Papua New Guinea has been very much in line with Indonesia, whereas their other three members haven't really buy into that. And West Papua's status at the MSG at the moment is an observer, and Melanesian State Group is pretty much the an intergovernmental organization, but it's more of a subset of the Pacific Island Forum, which Australia and New Zealand is part of that bigger regional forum. But what we're seeing at the moment is that Indonesia is now trying to influence other countries within the MSG, which is Solomon. <laughs> and it was two weeks ago that Indonesia has invited the Solomon Island delegation into West Papua. It was a secret um, visit that the Solomon Island delegation, and it was some of the civil society organizations <laughs> were um, also part of it, but individuals who went there without mentioning to the the organization they represent. Yes. So sadly, it has really divided Solomon Island, the civil society, and even the government. Mm. And so we are seeing how the oppressor is using this divide and conquer tactic to really um, divide, even within this, the movement, in not only just the intergovernmental body, but the civil society. Yeah. Um, so the the um, foreign minister um, Jacob Rumbiak for West Papua had actually gone also over to the the Pacific region. Uh, I can't remember the exact name of it to seek support and entry of um, West Papua into that organisation. Do you know much about that? Yes. So the the West Papuan leadership within we have the. A united Front organization called the United Liberation Movement for West Papua. Mm-hmm. And Jacob Rumbiak is the spokesperson yes. of this, this United Front body. And the, we have, the, leadership, the leadership has gone, gained a lot of support from the, at the moment there has been at least seven Pacific Island countries that have already vocal and supporting um, was Papua's right to self-determination and also the human rights situation that has been is always happening on the ground, and and that is um, threatening Indonesia. Like Indonesia is really scared that the support in the Pacific and is gaining more momentum and mm. support not only from the government but from the civil society. So there's a big uprising in around the Pacific on West Papua issue, yeah. and also in West Papua, uh, sorry, in the Pacific, because of the, one of the founding principles that has been really binding together the Pacific is the, the principles of solidarity and the idea of self-determination, which Pacific has come together back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s against um, like anti-nuclear um, even drift uh, the fishing uh, which is Japan uh, fishing in the Pacific the drift net fishing and also the ocean management and now we're seeing in the, the current issue with the climate change the mm. Pacific has been still keeping maintaining that solidarity and together and Pacific Island countries have 
really uh, vocal and um, leading that issue in the global um, forum on the climate change issue. So self-determination issue as well in the Pacific, um, we're seeing not only in Melanesia like West Papua, but also in New, New Caledonia upcoming referendum in November. Even Bougainville is also calling for a referendum in next year. Yeah. And and also in Tahiti, the Polynesia, and then we've got other um, smaller islands in the Polynesia like... Uh, no, Tuvalu is already an independent, but yeah, it's the Tahiti, French Polynesia, and uh, Futuna. It's an island just up above um, Fiji. Yep. So the issue of decolonization is still much alive in the Pacific. And so that has been kind of like gained this, bring the Pacific Island together to really fight for the rights of self-determination for each other within the Pacific region. Mm. So this this United Liberation Movement, did it seek support from the African nations as well? At the moment, it has been. So um, early this year, the, the leaders have uh, also attended the Commonwealth um, Forum, which was held in UK, London, and the, our, the leaders, Jacob himself with Benny Wenda and other leaders, Rex Rumakek, they all went there as part of the Vanuatu um, delegation. So the Vanuatu government has been very much supportive since the beginning, since it got its independence, and up until now, um, they have, yeah, has been very strong in in supporting with Papua. So have gone to the yeah the Commonwealth, and also looking into the um, African Caribbean Pacific, the ACP. Yes, body as well, which um, comprised of another big, yeah, bigger grouping, mm-hmm. and so the idea is to basically gain the support from all these different blocks that at least um, they pass some form of resolution on the issue of self-determination on West Papua, and in that it in itself um, the leadership is also looking forward into how we could, they can tap into the UN. Uh, member states, at least two-thirds of the UN member states to pass a resolution on West Papua um, to be listed at the UN Decolonization Committee. And, and from then, the, our issue is there and the, that, um, the International Court of Justice, or there is a, an opinion given to the issue of West Papua, especially um, what happened in 1969. Yep. which it was an, uh, a one-man, one-vote. And so that this is kind of like the, yeah, the ongoing um, campaign and lobby by the United Liberation Movement for West Papua, the leadership. So the legal um, pathway to really bring that forward, but also the, the roadmap for the West Papua um, freedom. Mm. Um, you want to tell us a little bit more about the uh, Indonesian activities because I know in April um, websites uh, were closed down and um, lots of communication uh, restrictions, media restrictions was happening. Um, you want to elaborate on that, um, Ronnie? Yes, this is an ongoing um, situation, especially in West Papua with um, communications um, breakdown or even just... Um, up in Timika at the moment in Freeport, 
that the, the it's a heavy military um, area that like they're securing that area and so there has been a lot of um, instability and a lot of propaganda that the authorities are kind of like framing the issue that there is a hostage situation and now they're dropping more troops but that is one area but also in other throughout Papua now like especially the year last month where the 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 on the just in the first of April leading up there was a because there was the the incident that happened in Papua New Guinea about the earthquake. Mm. And so they were, the Papuans felt that it's important to um, raise some money to support, in support of the earthquake victims. And so throughout Papua, the, the initiative of um, organizing um, fundraising and and so the idea to rally amongst the Papuans and that idea in itself, um, the Indonesian authorities felt that um, it is more than just uh, organizing a fund benefit gig or fundraising to support the victims of the earthquake in PNG. And so that even led to at least 44 people got arrested. Um, and that was, yeah, not only just in one area, but in like it was around uh, Papua, and even it went across in um, because of the network amongst the the activist groups and the campaign groups. It goes out as far as Jakarta, Jogja, Bandung, parts of Indonesia, including Bali, and so that network. Um, it was basically uh, raided by the police, and this is a co- continuing situation, and. A lot of people have been even under constant intimidation. Even uh, people, close friends, have to change their numbers um, every now and again. At least a mo- two months or three months, I will always get an update about oh, their numbers have been changed. And sometimes I'm like wondering, oh, why is that? Just and but then understanding about the security situation. So this is an ongoing um, reality. Even um, the World Press Freedom Day that happened um, just a few days ago. Um, even in Papua, the, a lot of the local indigenous um, journalists got attacked, and now there is an, a case about um, one of the local Papuan journalists being harassed and intimidated by the police. So this is a case that now has been brought to the police attention, but that has not going to of the realities of what's happening. And so these are the ongoing situation, including the environmental, um, the palm oil, especially that is now a big, big issue as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, there hasn't been a lot of um, attention into this, even including early in the year about the, the missiles, outbreak and the malnutrition in the southern part of Papua that at least have killed 
over 300 children. Yes. And there hasn't been no investigation into this. Well, there hasn't been any news, has there? I mean, normally they'll put no. that sort of news big time on, 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 on the media here. Um, the only bit I saw was on, on Facebook. And the oil palm campaign as well is the same thing. Um, it is staggeringly... It's, it's amazing that, that there's been absolutely no news on that many children dying at the doorstep of um, Australia, especially when they keep touting, oh, we will help our neighbours first. Very hypocritical. Yes, absolutely. And um, the BBC journalists were allowed to go in and um, just to do a coverage. Upon their arrival, they could have... They witness the horrific situation of how the families were just left there. Mm. And so one of the journalists, um, the BBC journalist actually sees Australian, and yeah. she tweeted mm. something on, the, on a Twitter about how could um, an aid that comes in, it's not medica- um, medical supply, but it's pretty much um, the two-minute noodles and coffee, instant coffee package. Oh. That was the first, like the aid relief, like testings that arrive in, in this, that region. My God. And so she can like tweet something around that with the photos. And next, within just hours, she was escorted and out straight from Papua. Hmm. So the, yeah. the, the, the control by the Indonesian military is extreme in West Papua, isn't it? Yes since day one and it has been increasing every time mm. and there is no um, uh, evidence of how many of them but every year there is this increased number of um, military coming in and they on, they're on duty for six months mm. and they rotate mm. but it is like they at least it was in 2012 an investigation by the human uh, 2009 but they released their report in 2011-12 but yeah what they're saying was that on record it was at least um three military personnel of three to five military personnel equivalent to one indigenous west papuan Mm. that are now in in papuan so it is them more at least more than the population, indigenous population in Papua. Wow. And tell us a little bit about the palm oil situation, because that is a big issue in that area and never gets talked about either. Yeah, the palm oil situation, um, it comes with the logging industry as well, because of um, the concession that the government are giving to um, investors and um, logging companies, basically, um, is that they're given hectares of land. The concession given is the hectares of land they're being allowed to operate. Um, that includes anything on that num- that hectares of land. So if there is um, gold or there is minerals within that area, then they have the right, they have the concession to dug out and clear everything. And uh, it was just... Last week, the Greenpeace UK um, have released uh, on their a report of their investigation, and this will be—it's really sad, but it's the reality um, of how the, the deforestation in West Papua 
has really allowed the, you know, in terms of palm oil uh, taking over. And it has been affecting the places in Merauke, especially. Hmm. It's a big project they call uh, MIFE. Yep. So MIFE is the Merauke Institute Food Estate. So what when they opened it in 2004, 2004 by the then President uh, Susilo Bamba he declared that this food estate would be the biggest or the largest that not only provide surplus for Indonesia, but to the entire world. Hmm. So that was his statement back then. And it has been sponsored by some of the countries that um, are rich and wealthy countries of great powers. And and the MIFE project itself, it's not just the palm oil, but it is. there has been other... Um, areas of food that they are planning that to grow on that. So it's a big food estate and like the plantation. And Mife, um, especially the palm oil, is kind of like causing a lot of problems with the local indigenous people because of the sacred land. And a lot of the lo- villages have been forced to be relocated, mm. to give way for the, the companies to come in and plant the palm oil there. So local um, activists, the local Papuans have come out to resist that. And many, sadly, and over the last few years, those prominent ones have been disappeared. And at least I can remember, like, there is four um, prominent um, activists to, to be uh, who have led the resistance against this project and the palm oil in Morocco. Yeah, no longer alive. And so... That has really weakened the mm. locals there, but there has been a few documentaries coming out um, in documenting the stories of how they keep on fighting or yeah, uh, mm. basically just resisting their palm oil. Yeah. And just that is just one story in Morocco, but in Jaipura it's another case as well of um, how the locals have been forced to be relocated away from their sacred land and then put into a made-up unit house where they have to pay, and then then being brought back to work in the palm oil plantation. And after a month, their wage is way below the normal, and it's pretty much $100 for a month wage. But then they have to pay for the place that they are living. And so it's really sad to... Uh, hear these stories of um, the Papuans and especially the palm oil. And of course we know the impact of it and on the environment and the ha- natural habitat. But yet it is very difficult to really mm. uh, get some uh, empirical evidence of what is what they're doing, the companies that are doing. Because at the end of the day, the, the concessions are given by, out by the security forces and the security forces are looking after their own interests. Of course. So that that makes it very difficult. But mm. it would be good to check out the Greenpeace UK report. Yeah. Uh, it's very much substantial report, and they've got some footage that also goes with it about uh, how much the land, the, the deforestation is happening. Mm. And also there's a, a, a public meeting coming up here 
um, in Melbourne on the 24th of May that uh, you're obviously aware of, um, uh, Ronnie. The Australian government in, is aiding the Indonesian police and military. They're refusing to tell you how your tax pay, taxes pay for the Indonesian military to conduct training, intelligence operations, joint exercises and weapons and ammunition. The Indonesian military and police kill torture and arrest and displace West Papuans, our neighbours. Here first hand accounts of this ongoing violence sorry, at six PM at Trades Hall, fifty four Victoria Street, Carlton South. Um, and for information, people should ring Rebecca, 0402 465992. Um, so that's, that's one, one, um, event that people can come to to support the battle against the Indonesian government. Is there any other, um, information you want to give the listeners, Ronnie, before we finish this, um, interview? Also, the, we have the, uh, the, the office. Yes. Of the, was Papuan, um, the campaign office, um, it's down in the Docklands, 838 Collins Street, and people can drop in there just to, um, um, they, there are the, our supporters and activists are there, and people can see how they can help to support the movement, especially in the area of interest, especially if it's on the environment issue or it's on human rights issue or anything that is related with the other campaigns that are happening in Australia, so we could build that. Um, solidar even the union that is another big um big area in yeah. Papua, yeah, especially the mining areas and there hasn't been a lot of the un- um, union movement happening in Indonesia, but especially in West Papua, it is one of the bigger areas that there hasn't been this um, no partnership or solidarity around the union movement mm. in Indonesia, and I know it's important an issue that many of the union um here in Australia could have um, we could build something around that yeah so that's that's a call out to any union members or union uh, delegates who are listening out there to talk to the unions about solidarity with uh, unions in West Papua um, in relation to the Indonesian terrorizing West Papua really okay um, thanks uh, Ronnie that was very comprehensive and we've taken more time than necessary but we haven't covered West Papua for a long time and I think it deserved the, the attention we've given it this morning um, and thank you so much for giving us the, the update on that and we'll, we'll, we'll try and um, move on to this um, getting the connection between trade unions and West Papua unions as well so it's something that anyone can work on really um, and um, we will catch up with you um, with further developments if, you, if, if something's happening you want to talk to us um, please get in touch so we can um, talk about it on, on air and let listeners uh, know about what's happening Thank you very much Lalita and we'll definitely uh, keep in touch Thanks Ronnie, bye and welcome back to Green Left Radio on 3CI 855 AM dial. I hope you enjoyed that um, interview with Ronnie Carini, who's been a long-term activist in the West Papuan community, and of course he's from West Papua. Um, and a reminder, if you like that interview, um, let me encourage you to put your hands in your pocket and donate to this uh, show that we put on every Friday, Green Left Radio Weekly. Uh, the subscription is easy to do. Just ring the station, uh, 94198377, or get onto your website, 
and uh, donate. It's easy to do and easy to follow. The instructions are there. So, as I said, ring 94198377. And if you could specifically donate to this program, we'll be ever so grateful and will help keep this program on air for uh, for as long as possible, really. And um, as we keep saying, it's between $90 and $100 uh, to put um, any um, uh, you know program to air for an hour um, as far as I know, I think so, um, one hour. Anyway, so let's get on to more news. And, Jacob, you've got a number of issues you wanted to bring up. Yeah, so um, some listeners might have heard that um, the council election was um, elections happened in Britain recently. And yes. it's a bit of an interest. Um, there's some kind of interesting things kind of um, flowing out from there. Um, I can start off with the positive news. The positive news is basically... Um, the UK Independence Party, the you know, outright racist party, UKIP, um, has basically, you know, as of these council elections, is basically dead. Um, they've fallen from... They used to have over around 126 seats in the local councils, but now they only have three. Um, although, to be fair... Um, the kind of nearly 4 million people who voted for its racist platform in 2015, kind of now their votes have basically shifted to the Tories um, because many of them want a, a racist, xenophobic version of um, Brexit and they see the Tories as the best chance of getting it. Um, but in terms of the what this kind of represents politically, especially in light of the, you know, the rise of Corbyn and so on, I think, you know... Focusing on Kensington and Chelsea um, as part of um, England's council elections on May 3rd um, is a good kind of indicator of how polarised um, the political situation is in Britain. Um, the Conservative-controlled um, council in um, Kensington and Chelsea was responsible for the completely avoidable deaths of 71 people in the Grenfell fire last year. Last year, the Tories ran on manifesto promise of twice weekly bin collections in lower council tax and lost only one seat. Uh, but of course it seems that Tory, what this indicates it seems Tory voters think saving a few quid on their um, council tax is more important than the lives of the people of Grenfell Tower. And of course this is a reflection of what class hatred and racist indifference looks like. Um, but I guess one of the things, as soon as the results started coming in, um, the media reported the story as a setback for Labor's socialist leader, Jeremy Corbyn. Um, BBC reports report repeating, um, as written here in Green Left Weekly, the same weird phrase, peak Corbyn from 6am onwards, as though they developed the same nervous tick. Um, there was also Labor... But I think the figures, the actual facts, actually told a um, different story. Labor controls 74 councils, the Tories 46, Labor won two, um, 23, 50 seats, a gain of 77, and the Tories won one free, two, free, free, two, a loss of 33. And so it's actually, um, though it's not a huge swing to Labor, it is actually it's a swing big to enough. It's big enough to... Yeah. And, you know, um, and the, the Labor knocked out the Tories out of Shroudford, a norm, the more remarkable result given the lack of support given to leftist Stephen Longdong, Longden in Brooklands by the party apparatus. The left mobilised for Longden, including a high-profile campaign visit by journalist Owen Jones and succeeded in taking Brooklands. 
Booklands as well as official target seats. Um, the Labor took Plymouth, which is winning four seats previously held by the Tories, and of course there were other places where Labor took seats it had not held for decades. And, of course, the, this is all in the context of the kind of media onslaught that came out against Corbyn um, in the weeks leading up to these council elections. Um, there were accusations that Corbyn was a Russian spy. Um, there was this really serious kind of um, allegations thrown against Corbyn for being anti-Semitic. Um, but what's quite clear is in a lot of the Jewish neighbourhoods in Britain, um, Labour's vote actually increased That's right. significantly. That's right. Um, and... You know, but I think, you know, I think I guess what we can summarise to conclude, you know, these local government elections, I think, represent a kind of modest victory for Labour. Um, and results can be very, you know, as written here, can be very, very idiocentric when politics are fought at a lo- the local level. And, um, of course, when it comes to the next general election, it will not be fought over potholes and street, um, street lights. The last one showed that with a radical program, Labor can turn the tide against the Tories. Um, yeah, but, you know, obviously a number, a few council, council candidates were able to fight on that ta- um, type of platform. But now I guess the concluding, the, the best kind of implication of this is there's now more left councillors than there have been in a generation. And I guess the kind of encouragement is that left um, wing activists need to work with them to break the passivity and defeatism that has been the hallmark of Labour and local government for a yeah, decade. It's, it's fantastic positive, positive reinforcement for people who have been fighting for years against the right wing uh, parties in, in, in Britain you know, since, since, the, since the days of Margaret Thatcher, really. Um, coming back home, I thought this was... This was um, uh, terrible news, but anyway, not terrible. But you know, it's 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 horrible. Uh, on the top of the the problems that people suffer in in the um, unemployment area, the CPSU, the Community um, Public Sector Union, has slammed Centrelink um, Centrelink call centre outsourcing. Um, it apparently. <coughs> Contracting has been done for another 1,000 private call centre operators to answer calls to Centrelink, and this will not fix a problem caused by the federal government. It's got, uh, you know, it, the damaging cuts and, and, and this budget that has been handed down, both by, by uh, Liberal and Labour, uh, in relation to the unemployment um, benefits, um, in, in, in relation to services to, to people unemployed who have to access mm-hmm. Centrelink money. It's just absolutely... Draconian, you know, it's just getting so bad. The fact that John Howard had said that they should remove the freeze on the $40 per day um, formula tells you how far to the right this government has moved. And uh, Minister of Human um, Services Michael Keenan announced uh, in late April that there were 1,000 low paid and insecure jobs on top of the 250 Positions currently generating a profit of multi, four multicultural companies, Circle. And Circle Call Center is being used to fudge the damning stats on wait times and missed calls, in addition to the fact that it's been privatized. So that the CP, CPSU National Secretary Nadine Flood said that we have been calling loudly for years for more permanent Centrelink call staff, cent, call, sorry, um, Centrelink call center staff to replace the more than 5,000 jobs the government has slashed in this department. Instead, the government is 
continuing to sell the agency off piece by piece, lining the pockets of their corporate mates like Circle, rather than putting the money into wages and secure jobs for call centre workers. Centrelink services standards have been falling since the first day of this government, and you don't need to be Einstein to see the cutting 5,000 jobs, and they're still cutting even more jobs today, um, and then adding 1,250 privatized positions through a profit-making multinational uh, that's supposedly going to fix all this. So it's it's just a horrendous situation for the people who are dealing with Centrelink. As, as it is, it's a nightmare to do anything. And even when you turn up, there's long queues, and there's like almost security guard, you know, guiding people through along these queues. It's just looking more and more horrible. Um, the Joint Committee of Public Accounts and our Audit continues to uncover damning examples across the Commonwealth agencies of this government's um, addiction to inefficient and opaque arrangements using contractors, consultants and labour hires. So these private organisations will find the figures as is desired by the government and minimise any negative feedback that, that people give who use these agencies. So it's just getting, it's just horrible um, you know, to, to, to see this happen, it just, I don't know. Anyway, but there's another uh, issue I wanted to talk about. Um, it's uh, the Flinders nuclear dump. Uh, these are issues that does never get aired in the media, but Greenleaf's got an um, uh, article on it. Uh, April 29 marked two years since the Minister for Resources and Energy, Josh Frydenberg, selected the South Australian outback as a site for, to store Australia's radioactive waste. Um, the Australian Radiation Protection and Nuclear Safety Agency held inf- informal community consultations in both towns, and in, in, that's in um, Barney, ba- ba- sorry, I could try and pronounce the name properly, uh, Banduta, near Hawker, and Kimba, um, the other two places, and, uh, where, and the consultations, and the, the federal agency apparently that will assess any application made by the federal government for nuclear waste repository, um, and the role of ARPA and SA role is informal for the moment because no official application has been made, has been lodged by the federal government. So the, this organization's chief executive officer, Carl Magnus Larson said if the agency were to receive an application, it could make between 6 and 12 months to decide whether to grant a license for the facility. So it's all about um, trying to get approval for this uh, facility and the community protesting against it. So the site employment and economic opportunities are modest. Some short-term fencing and construction work and just 12 to 15 longer-term security maintenance jobs. In contrast, according to the South Australian Tourism Commission, visitor expenditure in the Flinders Ranges is $415 million a year, with 1,400 jobs directly in the tourism industry and 1,300 indirect jobs. So this, this battle will continue um, regardless. And the um, flag chairperson, uh, Greg Bannon, said... The fight has been going since the site was shortlisted. For two years, the government has had a continual presence um, in the district. The process had dragged on, but the government needs to know that we are committed to stopping the proposal. And the Kimber Council, uh, local council, 
sorry, Kimba local Audrey Lynette said while the community was split over the proposal, there was a common concern among those who did not support the facility. If the word gets out that we are, we've got nuclear here in our uh, farming land, what will our market be overseas? And will that do, and what will that do to our prices? So the, the federal government has said it will make a decision on the location of the nuclear waste facility before the end of the year. So the battle goes on. So the Australian Radiation Protection and, and Nuclear Safety Agency, um, is going to be part of this whole thing. So it's just looking horrendous. They're destroying the land. Um, they, they're so badly mistreating our young people who are on Centrelink. It's depressing, isn't it? Let's have some good news, um, Jacob. Hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure if I have really any good news at the moment. Okay. <laughs> you want to talk about the Victorian Socialists? Um, well, just that the election launch is happening on the 12th, well, tomorrow, um, uh, the Saturday at the uh, 7 p.m. at the Grace Darling Hotel. Um, apparently it might be incredibly packed, um, so I kind of I might give you an early heads up that it probably might be best to arrive early at 6:30 um, to guarantee a, a, um, a space in inside the upstairs area, which is apparently could only fit um, up to 200 people. So, and there's potentially might be more than 300 to 400 people coming to this election launch. Okay, um, the health issues are big. Um, the Transforming the Health Services Union, a lesson in rack and file organizing, which is um, interesting because Sarah, Sarah Hathaway has written something about that, which is slightly positive. <laughs> um, um, the HSU expenses affair was protracted political scandal um, in uh, 2006 onwards until 2011, revealed the criminal activities of the former HSU National Secretary of the Labour political Craig Thompson and former HSU National President um, Michael Williamson. Um, in 2008, Cathy Jackson, of course, and, and, and the battle continued from there. <clears throat> so in June 2012, the, the HSU East Branch, which consisted of the merger of HSU and uh, New South Wales and HSU branches, one in and three in Victoria, was put under administration and, and demerged back into uh, three separate branches. All elected positions were declared vacant. So five months later, a rank-and-file ticket called Clean Sweep stood for all the, the positions and won all elected positions in HSU Branch 3. The ticket consisted of rank-and-file HSU members, including the radiographers, <coughs> occupational therapists, and other allied health professionals. The ticket by Craig McGregor won the support of the members against a ticket led by Fleur Behrens. <clears throat> who was a Branch 3 organiser at that time and was backing Jackson, the right-wing Labour Senator David Feeney. So it seems Barron's received more than campaigning advice from her backers and uh, there's compelling evidence suggesting Jackson arranged $10,000 of members fund to put it towards her projet election campaign. So McGregor, who won the position of secretary in 2012, um, has retained that position since and commented on the formation of the ticket and the response from the members at the, at the time. Members were walking away from the union in droves, and I found that to be um, incredibly self-destructive. Self self so the, the um, 
ineptitude of the union had already led to um, real problems of uh, allied health in Victoria. So the last thing we need was uh, uh, more of the same. And since HSU Branch 3 has undergone some name changes, as it sought to establish its identity um, in the union and, in, and industry of health professionals. In July 2013, the branch was um, br- uh, branded as Branch 3. So the Victorian Allied Health Professionals um, was a new, for, new name, uh, branded slightly again in 2015. Um, so the association as it is it's known today, the name has changed. further step has been a big step in establishing the identity of the union membership as a discrete industry. <laughs> So the, in, in, they have participated very well in the Change the Rules campaign. So the health, the services union has grown. Um, and, uh, of course, the, they were marched. Uh, they had a huge contingent at the Change the Rules campaign. And McGregor said, obviously, the contemporary political frame impacts seriously on our ability to operate as a union. The Australian public appears to be um, blatantly unaware of the draconian nature of our industrial relations system and the extent of uh, reform necessary. Clearly, this is a product of the non-stop war being waged on workers. So I really think the Change Rules campaign is more than one in a generation opportunity. We are at the critical juncture in Australian union history. If we fail in this, the consequences for workers and for society will be catastrophic. So as we talked about it, that this Change Rules campaign has to... um, it's already inspired workers. It has to be ongoing, and it has to be uh, has to challenge all the things that Labor and Liberal put forward that attack workers. Um, so that that's that's what they say. Otherwise, it's going to be a failure. So let's go to a break, and then um, we shall move on to announcements. Help Freesia support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our song run and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care and also others... The recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. CR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves, in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 
3CR Community Radio. You got it right. You've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am. We're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Okay, welcome back to Green Left Radio, and uh, it's uh, just after 8 o'clock, 8.04 in fact, and we'll quickly go through some announcements before we go on to the next interview. Jacob, you want to start the announcements? Yeah, so there's a number of um, interesting events um, happening up. So um, tomorrow at um, 11.30 a.m. at the State Library, um, there will be uh, a sort of action on bringing baby girl Kopika um, home. Um, which is as Queen, on May 12, Queensland-born Kopika turns free, but unless steps, Peter Dutton steps in to help her, she'll spend it locked away in a Melbourne detention centre. Let's show this beautiful family how much they are loved by holding our own birthday party for Kopika. Um, we have, we'll have birth balloons, streamers, party games, and of course a real birthday cake, and they'll be at 11.30 a.m. at the State Library, and I think it's organised jointly by both Asylum Seekers Resources Centre and Refugees Action Collective. Also happening tomorrow will be the Victorian Socialist Campaign Launch, um, which is at 7pm at the Grace Darling Hotel at 114 Smith Street um, in Collingwood, um, which is the launch of the United Socialist Ticket with um, Stephen Jolly, um, Sue Bolton and Colin Bolger as their candidates. Um, on Sunday, um, there'll be a film screening, Cooked House, um, which is a fundraiser for Hobson Bay's Refugee Network, and they'll be at 6.15pm for a 7pm start at the Sun Theatre. Um, there'll be interesting public meeting happening next Tuesday, public meeting talking treaty, um, hear directly from the, this land's first peoples about their expectations of what makes a fair and just treaty process. We'll also be discussing historical um, clan elders council treaty gathering and its resolution slash recommendations and that's hosted by Lydia Forp at 6.30pm at the North Cape Town Hall. Um, Tuesday, May, um, Thursday, May 17th, there'll be a film screening, um, Beats Per Minute. Um, Nathan is a young man who joins an AIDS activist group in 1990s um, Paris as he attends the weekly meetings. He learns that some members prefer a more radical approach to their politics and that will be um, staying to screen at the Cinema Nova. Um, and Friday, um, May 18th, there'll be the Stop Adani Rise Up Northern um, Roadshow. They'll be at 7pm at the Uniting Church, at, um, which is at 2 112 to 214 Sydney Road in Brunswick. And on Saturday, the May the 19th, um, there'll be the Palestine, uh, a protest for Palestine, 70 years at Nakba. They'll be at 12 noon at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city, and it's organised by Solidarity for Palestine. There'll also be another art exhibition, um, War Never Again, um, which will be at the Steps Art Gallery, 62 Ligon Street in Carlton. All proceeds from the exhibition will um, be donated to ICANN and MAPA to support the right of work they've been doing to ban um, nuclear weapons and promote peace. Um, and there'll also be a fundraiser, Free CR Radiophon, live music by the Amazonics, uh, etc. at 7pm at, t- um, at 6 t- to 22 Cross Street, Brunswick East, and it's hosted by the program Complita Balibi. Um, and now on Sunday, May the 12th, there'll be mu- uh, music freedom time party, um, which I don't 
I think um, Lali has the rest of the details. <laughs> the second page is over here. It's been, un- uh, <coughs> where is it? The, um, oh, that's interesting. I've lost the, the, the second bit of it. Is it about the Indonesian occupation since 1963? What's the, um, that's the um, May 24th um Meeting Jacobs, that what you're talking about there? May 20th. 20th. I've lost that bit. But anyway, there's a, a music gig on the same day. Um, uh, come along for a, a gig in Sunday sesh to raise money for Together for Yes campaign. Yeah, your ears will be treated to some finest and talented Irish and Australian music. Passionate about repealing the 8th. Um, 6.30 p.m. Handsome Her. 206 Sydney Road, Brunswick. So it's gig for choice. Tuesday 22nd, block, um, book, um, book launch, Capitalism, a Crime Story. It's a new book by Harry Glasbeek, and that'll be held in Trades Hall, um, room one at 7 p.m., $5 entry, hosted by the International um, Bookshop. May 24th is a public meeting, as we said before, about West Papua. Please do turn up to support this nation that's been under enormous attack for such a long time uh, by the Indonesian military and, of course, um, with a lot of support from Australia. And we owe it to them to um, stand up to support them. The 25th, there's a, a public meeting, the case for progressive populism. Uh, David McKnight will talk about this new book, um, and it, it's again at the International Bookshop at 7 p.m. It's about populism can be a dirty word. Brexit and the election of Donald Trump have certainly given it a bad name. So the issue will be discussed by David McKnight with the launch of his book. Um, the I just want to um, finish off with um, one... Uh, Important um, um, announcement. Friday, May 18th, there's um, uh, The Wanted 18, the Canadian-Palestinian animated documentary about the efforts of Palestinians in Beit Sahor to start a small local dairy industry uh, during the first intifada, hiding a herd of 18 dairy cows from Israeli security forces. The event's at 7 p.m., but dinner starts at 6.30, and dinner is available uh, by donation. Trades Hall, 127 Myers Street, Geelong. So if you want to uh, listen to something really interesting about Palestine and the connection between um, Canada and Palestine, attend this, this event. So we'll go on to the next interview now. Um, it, Kevin Bathman from Malaysia to talk about the elections um, that was held and um, he's a Malaysian who's uh, left Malaysia like myself um, to escape the the horrors of the politics in Malaysia but um, the elections have given people new hope and late last night Dr Mahathir was sworn in as the new Prime Minister for Malaysia uh, Good morning Kevin Good morning Malaysia Oh we can't hear him oh. yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, I should put my earphones on, shouldn't I? Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to 3CR. Sorry about that. I'm not in good form today with all the technology for some reason. Um, 
thank you for uh, for offering your talk to us. Um, while you have not wanted to go into the politics or political analysis of the situation, tell us sure. about how you feel as an individual and, and a member of Bursay for a long time um, sure. in relation to what this event means for you. It's earth-shattering, isn't it? It is, it is. Um, uh, I mean, uh, I've been sort of involved with the, uh, the race business for about six or seven years, you know, um, really from Bursay 3 onwards. Um, and I guess I should probably explain what Bursay is to people who don't know what it is. Um, it's really a, a started off in 2008 as a people's movement by Ambiga Srinivasan, uh, who's Malaysian in Malaysia. Um, and uh, it was really a, a call to action for people to... Um, to 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 sort of advocate for a free and fair elections in Malaysia, um, and so um, since 2008 we've had about uh, five um, uh, rallies, you know, uh, uh, where people uh, came onto the streets, uh, you know, in a peaceful manner, um, to sort of uh, to advocate uh, for for the government uh, and in particular the election commission, uh, the EC, to um, to be more transparent in in, in how. Um, they're dealing with the, the elections. Um, so on that basis, uh, that was how I sort of um, got really involved um, with Malaysian politics, to be honest. Um, you know, I mean, really pre-2008, I don't think a lot of Malaysians were very engaged with the, with the politics of the country. No, it was too difficult and intimidating. Very much so, yeah. yeah even you I know, have difficulties, you know. Giving yeah. A lot of us have families back in Malaysia. You just don't know what will happen to them if you step, uh, put a, st- a footstep uh, out of line. That's right, that's yeah. right. I think, um, um, and I think before even, you know, pre-2008 really, uh, we, most people, or rather most Malaysians, or even overseas Malaysians, really just sort of like gave up hope really to go like, well, you know, what are the odds really, you know, of, of doing anything, changing anything, you know, we've, we've almost resigned to the fact that, you know, we will always have this government, you know. Um, so it was quite a chattering, you know, um, like, you know, uh, these elections where, you know, um, pe- people are still in disbelief. You know, yes. I'm still in disbelief. <laughs> yes, so am I. How, how did this happen? You know, like, it, we were just so, yeah, and, and I think a lot of people didn't quite understand why it was such a big deal and why it mattered so much to, to, to Malaysians, you know. I mean, uh, and I, 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 uh, and everyone who's been working on this, these general elections, um, uh, have not had much sleep <laughs> because we've been <laughs> yes. constantly on social media yeah. um, and, and trying to get news from back home. You know, I mean, I'm talking about uh, obviously Malaysians, uh, but even Malaysians at home as well. You know, yes. Um, and and so I've been I've been sort of involved with um, this uh, uh, the the movement called Global Birthday, which is um, really. Um, the, as I said, the, the movement that started off at home. But what happened really um, um, after that was, um, uh, and particularly in the last elections, was um, the overseas Malaysians started to sort of organize themselves, you know. Mm. And um, and all this really, we call them uh, the local city chapters, started um, uh, uh, popping up around the world, you know. Mm. And they sort of said, well, I'm going to start a chapter here and I'm going to call it versus Sydney, you know. Um, and, and that's how it all started. You know, we started really sort of becoming um, mobilized and started learning from each other and, and started to sort of echo the, the main messages that Bursi in Malaysia, in KL, were, were saying uh, to bring more awareness about what's actually happening in, in the country and in, with, in the government, you know. Yeah. Um, and so it was really uh, quite earth-shattering. I mean, we've had about over... 
um, 85, 86 countries who participated in the last birthday as well, overseas, I mean, you know. Mm. Um, and so Global Birthday was, um, was, was started about five years ago um, by a few of us. Um, so there's about 12 members of us, and we just really started um, uh, getting organized. We got registered in, in Geneva. Um, uh, we, we set up as a, as a not-for-profit um, NGO. Um, and yeah, and so that's pretty much how we all um, came about, you know. Um, and it's been a, quite a journey because uh, since 2008, I think the first time is in 2008 when the Barisan National started to lose its popular vote as well. And right. it's, it's, I think it's part, partly to do with, with, with Bersain as well as Hinraf and, and other organizations uh, that were starting to, to, to protest and, and uh, you know, in, in a different way. And social media, I think, played an enormous role in this, this whole thing. And for me, the key thing is the young people have mobilized to vote. And, uh, and that's related to the social, social media. I mean, that's what I think anyway. Yes, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think, I think the movement has actually really galvanized, um, Malaysians generally, you know, not just, um, uh, the ones overseas, but also back home, you know. Mm. Um, and he's, it's sort of given us a sense of identity almost, uh, about who we are, you know, because I think for the longest time, I don't think we knew, we even knew who we were, you know, as mm. Malaysians. Yes, um, it's, it's interesting. To, sorry to, to interrupt you there because I was listening to the Johor Sultan, who's for, for listeners, it's, it's the king of the state, state that what, what is a Malaysian? He said there are no such people as um, Malays, actually. He says yes. Malays because everybody came to this land from other, other, <laughs> other nations or other islands, whether it's Bugis or Celebes or Indonesia or all these islands. So we all migrants to this country. So the racism or the race divisions that have caused so much political upheaval um, seems meaningless when you think about it in that way and I was actually shocked to hear that the Johor Sultans say things like that (laughs) (laughs) so the identity is amazing we've been so preconditioned you know um, since since, um, um, independence in 1957 um, into having race-based parties I mean when I still talk to my my, friends who are non-Malaysians who kind of go Oh yeah, you know we have parties aligned according to our race. People just go, yes. "What?" You know, <laughs> how does that happen? You know, um, it's it's just not that anymore. But say, well, it still happens in Malaysia. You know, but it's it's um, also the legacy of the colonial powers that left absolutely uh, divided right. Malaysia by along, along race lines. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and, I mean, it really are uh, really byproducts or effects of colonization uh, yeah. from the British. You know, uh, mm. and that's how it all started. You know, but I mean, I think. Um, as a country matures, you know, we need to sort of be aware that, you know, um, these were tactics used by them and, and that may have worked back then, but it does not work anymore, you know. Um, yep. People are waking so, yeah, up. So, sorry? People are waking up. Yes, that's right. That's right. I mean, um, and I think in particular, I mean, a lot of the overseas Malaysians were so um, annoyed and were so angry and furious at the EC um, uh, for uh, uh, the election commission this um, um um, general elections in particular because the the postal votes were were just you know um was so badly organized yes it was almost like no postal was the way it was functioning that's wasn't right it? that's right i mean i mean uh, the elections was held on on thursday uh, wednesday uh, uh, wednesday sorry yeah and um and people are we're still getting reports that people are still receiving the ballot papers yes the post, you know? <laughs> what are you going to do with it you know so um it, it, it's quite ridiculous, really. I mean, I, I was one of the lucky ones who received it um, about three to four days before. Mm. Um, but it really, literally was a rush. I, you know, I 
called up a friend, uh, let's get this on to DHL overnight, you know, um, and, and, you know, it arrived about a day and a half um, before the, the elections. Um, but, you know, so many of them were so angry and disappointed, you know, um, um, not just with, you know, because they, 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 they left it up too late, you know. Yeah, but so a lot of postals weren't other, counted. No, not at all, not mm, at all. Mm. And, and, and it's so many... Um, Issues like, you know, the fact that um, they only announced it really in January, February to, you know, uh, to, to start uh, organizing yourself for postal vote, you know, because before that, um, this is only the second time um, that overseas Malaysians could actually vote um, overseas. Yes, before that's that, right. You, you, you were not uh, able to. You had to sort of fly back, you know. Yep. Um, so I think... Um, but you could, uh, go to the, you could go to the embassy to vote, couldn't you? Um, that was only in the last election. Yep. So I think so. People will all have this, that that in mind. They're like, oh, I'll just go to the to the embassy. And say, well, that doesn't happen anymore. You know, yeah. you actually really got to to apply for this postal vote. You know, you've got to literally fly back. You know, yeah. I and mean, I know many people actually flew back. You know, mm. um, and, and and you know, amongst the and, and I was sort of coordinating um, a lot of the um, information that's coming in through Global Base basically for like two two to three days straight about. People sort of doing really last minute things like, oh, how do I register? What do I do? You know, where mm. do I find the address? And, you know, things like that. So, um, and, and it's, it's really peculiar because, um, what, what the EC said was that, um, um, you know, to, to the, uh, 2.7 million Malaysians overseas. I mean, that's, that shows how many Malaysians are, you know, outside of Malaysia. They've left. Couldn't yeah, take that, it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, we, we, uh, this is a report that, that we received from a uh, from a global uh, migrational uh, report um, uh, internationally that was done. Um, in the last elections, there were 1.3 million Malaysians overseas mm. who mm. are living uh, abroad, right? Yeah. Um, in in the span of five to six years, that has doubled to 2.7 million. That's amazing. That just, yeah, that just shows how you know how unhappy people were. You know, they yep. they, they literally left. Yes. You know? Um, and so yeah, so anyway, with the with the postal votes, I mean, um, a few countries were excluded from doing it. I mean, what was the reason, you know? Yeah. So people in Brunei, in, in Singapore, in Kalimantan, in Southern Thailand were were, were excluded from doing it. So they, those people who were there had to literally um, fly back. Wow. Yeah. So that's an so, amazing result, and and uh, I guess we'll see the political fallout from now. And uh, I heard uh, just this morning that. Um, uh, Dr. Mahathir was sworn in by the king, the Agong, as yes. the uh, prime minister. And yes. the first two things that Mahathir has sworn to do is, one, remove the GST, which is 6%, isn't it? Yes. Yet, right. And yes. also um, get a, a royal pardon for Anwar once he's released from prison later this, uh, next month, really, isn't it? Yes. So right. that's, that's right. I think over the next few weeks, more things will unfold and, and I people, think so. Yes, it's, people are so high on adrenaline, I think. <laughs> I can't talk to anybody. Everybody is so uh, elated and, and almost frozen. And they say they can't believe it. And it was just, I guess, 61 years of suffering says it all, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it has been so amazing to read people's reaction to things. Mm. And I'm just like, we are living this sort of weird yep. universe at the moment <laughs> because, you know, people are still finding it hard to go, oh, but I'm... What does it mean? I'm pro-government now or anti-government? You know, it's because we've been so preconditioned since, I mean, for many people, you know, they didn't even think that this would ever happen in their lifetime. You know? That's right, exactly. It's a once-in-a-lifetime <laughs> event. <laughs> well, so for that to happen, I mean, you know, for my mom to kind of say, oh, my God, I just, it, it, 
you know, I mean, she's 75 and she just never thought this would ever happen. I know. Yeah, yeah. Um, just wanted to know, um, just what is the kind of exact time frame um, in terms of, like, how long has the current ruling power, um, power well, party previously yeah. that's just been outlected been in power for? I can tell you that. 61, 61 years. years. 61 years. <laughs> 1957, we had independence. Yeah. I was seven years old. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, anyway. So, it's a joy to, yeah. to, to have this happening in our lifetime and still alive to see it. Mm. Like your mom. Mm. <laughs> I, and I think people are, are, are I mean, you know, for, for those who are, who are not quite understanding of the, the, the issues, you know, I mean, uh, from the offset, they, they kind of read a couple of articles and I've had people kind of go, but how can you get the ex-prime minister to come and be, a, you know, a, a leader and he's 93 years old, are you sure you guys are, are doing the right thing? And it's like, you know... Uh, Really, he wasn't really the only option, to be no, honest. Like, that's you right. know, um, and that was the only way they could actually bring down a regime. You yeah, know? and there's a lot more to it. And I, I'm going that's to right. to that's get right. a more detailed political analysis because I think there are fundamental issues there uh, yeah. that needs to be um, peeled back. And um, I'll organise a, a <coughs> detailed political analysis later on. But time's running out. We better run out of the studio before the next program coming <laughs> kicks us out. But thank you yeah. so much, Ken. We could keep talking about this. No I'm problem. excited. I can see you. Excited too. <laughs> so let's talk again in the near future. I'll get a bit. I'll get a bit of a forum together, and, and, and we can have a chat and I'll record it and put it to air. I think it'd be very good. Okay. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Let's thank the. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, the interviews this morning, uh, Ronnie Carini from West Papua, and of course. Um, <coughs> excuse me, um, Kevin Bathman, Malaysian, living in New South Wales. Um, and all the news items we had, we had tons of news there. Um, I hope you have enjoyed the program. And before we go, I just want to make one last announcement. It's um, about a band that um, was playing, is playing uh, called Juan Chaco. They have contributed to some uh, 3CR programs in the past. And they're a fusion band aimed to create a collection of understanding of culture and expression through music. They're launching a new um, album, um, Aqua, on the 25th of May in a place called um, Long Play in Fitzroy. It's, a, it's some sort of a pub, I think. Oh, yeah, I've been to Long Play before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, this, they're great musicians. <laughs> so I'm just going to play that before we leave. And thank you so much for listening. Wait, where are they performing tonight? Not tonight, on the 26th of May. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> okay, here we go.
This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Three pieces of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned in.